Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Pregnancy is an exciting time full of hope and wonder and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever. And for victims of fetal abduction in the United States, their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series, we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America, from the highly publicized cases to the little known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. This episode takes us up north to Canada, where on November 18, 1987, 20-year-old Jay Cook and his 18-year-old girlfriend, Tanya Van Koyenborg, set out on an overnight road trip that would take them from their hometown in Saanich, British Columbia, Canada, to Seattle, Washington. They had planned on sleeping in the back of their van for the night, then collecting supplies for Jay's family's furnace company before turning around and heading back home. The couple never arrived to collect the supplies, and when they didn't arrive home the next evening as planned, their families called the police to report the couple missing. A week later, a passerby discovered a body in a rusty culvert hidden from view and covered in damp foliage and the case turned from a missing persons report to a homicide. Tanya Van Koylenborg was born in 1989 to parents Willem and Jean. She grew up in the suburbs of Greater Victoria in British Columbia with her parents and her brother John. The family were close and all loved to sail and play tennis together. Tanya picked up the guitar as a child and loved music. She also loved animals, and she begged her parents for all sorts of pets, such as cats, fish, and gerbils. Eventually, her parents got her a dog, a golden retriever, that she named Tessa. After graduating from Oak Bay High School, Tanya took a gap year to earn money and decide what she wanted to do for a career. She knew she wanted to work with animals and was considering becoming a veterinarian, but she also wanted to earn enough to visit family in Holland before committing to the rigors of college courses. 
Jay Cook grew up nearby with his parents, Leona and Gordon, and his sisters, Laura Lee and Kelly. Jay enjoyed boating, and his interests and ability led him to work on a fishing boat, as well as at a pizza place and for his family's furnace business. Like Tanya, Jay loved music, and his instrument of choice was the bass. Jay and Tanya had only been together for a few months, and during their short relationship, there were only a handful of pictures of them taken together. A widely circulated one is a candid, with Jay not looking at the camera. Jay and Tanya borrowed the Cook family van, a bronze 1977 Ford, and set off for Seattle. They caught the ferry from Victoria to Port Angeles, and as they arrived in Port Angeles around 4 p.m., the daylight was fading into the chilly fall night. The pair planned on driving straight through to Bremerton to catch the ferry to Seattle, but when they stopped and asked for directions at a store, they found that they had missed the turnoff and they were off course. Armed with snacks and new directions, they got back into the car and completed the uneventful drive to Bremerton, stopping only for gas before getting to the ferry. After the ferry docked around midnight, they planned on driving to the Genko store and parking outside for the night, napping in the back of the van until it opened the next morning. What they planned for is not what occurred, and what happened in the hours after disembarking from the ferry are still largely unknown. On the evening of November 19th, when the couple had not returned as expected, their families called the police. They had not arrived home and they had not called to say that they had been delayed, and Tanya always stayed in contact with her family when she traveled. Not calling was very unusual for her. Searches for Jay, Tanya, and the van began immediately by both police and family, but there was a large area to cover from where they were last seen at the ferry terminal to where they were supposed to end up in South Seattle, and that was if they had stayed on the main road. The young couple had already gotten lost once, and it was possible that they had taken another wrong turn, and there was nowhere open to ask for directions. They could be any number of places, and the police were looking for a needle in a haystack. The police were also cautiously optimistic that the couple were missing of their own accord, just young lovers who had decided to run away, perhaps to elope. Jay and Tanya's parents, however, knew that the pair would not have gone on a trip like that without telling their families. Tanya's father initiated searches of Vancouver Island, Vancouver, and Seattle, and showed Tanya's photo to anyone who would look at it in the hopes that someone had seen his daughter. On November 24th, a retired man was out picking up cans and bottles along a rural stretch of Parson Creek Road near Alger, 75 miles north of Seattle. This was something he did often to earn a little extra money. However, that day he noticed something down the embankment as he walked past. There he found the body of a young woman laying in the ditch with only her legs visible. Her upper body was covered in damp leaves and branches that had fallen around. The man walked to a nearby house and asked them to call the police. The police would soon discover that this was Tanya's body. She was naked from the waist down, apart from her socks, and bound with zip ties. An autopsy would reveal that she had been shot in the back of the head, and there was evidence of a sexual assault. Police searched the area for Jay, but there was no sign of him. 
A shell casing was found at the scene, and the assailant had not worn a condom, so DNA evidence was collected as well, but otherwise, there was very little to go on. In 1987, DNA testing was in its infancy, so the presence of semen on a body was not immediately helpful to the investigation. Tanya's family was informed about the discovery, and the search continued for Jay. The next day, a handyman was doing work at a tavern in Bellingham, 16 miles north of where Tanya's body was found. By chance, the handyman found a box under the porch, and inside the box was Tanya's ID along with rubber gloves, ammunition, zip ties, and the keys to the Cook family van. This prompted a search of the area, and the locked van was found in a parking lot near the Greyhound bus station not far from the tavern. A witness later came forward and said that the van had been there for four days, which suggested that there was a gap between when Tanya and Jay went missing and when the van showed up in Bellingham. Inside the van was the usual evidence of a road trip, snacks, wrappers, the usual trash that accumulates on the road, along with the Bremerton to Seattle ferry ticket, Jay's ID, and a Royal Bank of Canada check for $750. As the search continued, police found zip ties in the shape of a lasso and Tanya's pants. One of the blankets and one of the seats had bloodstains, and a jacket, a backpack, and a camera were all missing from the van. A day later, and 70 miles away, two pheasant hunters were walking by Crescent Lake Road near a river in Snohomish County when their dog ran off and did not come back when called. The hunters followed their dog, and they found the body of Jay Cook curled up in the fetal position. A light blue blanket partially covered his body. While Tanya had been shot, the autopsy showed that Jay had been strangled with a dog collar made of twine that was attached to a red dog lead, and there was blunt force trauma injuries to his head. Blood and hair covered the rocks nearby, showing that one of the weapons had been a weapon of convenience. A packet of cigarettes and a tissue was discovered shoved into Jay's throat, and while there were no zip ties binding him, some were found nearby. Although police suspected that they had found Jay Cook, it was officially confirmed a few days later through dental records. The medical examiner at the time estimated that Jay had been dead for 36 to 72 hours before he was found, and this suggested that he had been alive for several days after he was last seen. While awaiting the formal identification of Jay's remains, friends and family of the couple gathered at a memorial service held at the Victoria University Interfaith Chapel. A $10,000 reward was offered to anyone who could provide information leading to the arrest of Tanya and Jay's killer. Police had very little physical evidence to go on and began following up on any leads and tips that they could. Because of where Tanya's body had been found, the police theorized that the couple did not take the ferry to Port Angeles as originally planned, and instead had driven around the coast and crossed into the United States by land. However, they later found witnesses, mainly workers from the stores that Jay and Tanya stopped in at on their way from Port Angeles to Bremerton, who remembered the couple and were able to clarify and confirm that they did catch the ferry. Jay was very tall, and he tried to pay for gas using Canadian traveler's checks, which made him memorable. 
After stopping for gas, no one reported seeing them get on the ferry at Bremerton or after they got off the ferry in Seattle. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jay and Tanya had no contacts in the United States apart from the company that they were buying parts from, and it was confirmed that they never made it to the store to complete the transaction and the check that they planned to pay with was still in the van. Despite the medical examiner estimating Jay's time of death as being 36 to 72 hours before he was found, the police theorized that they were both killed soon after they got off the ferry in Seattle. There were initially an estimated 350 suspects, yet no arrests were ever made. There was speculation that this could be a connection to a killer responsible for the deaths of two other young women in the area. However, that link was never formally established. Palm prints were found in the van, but they did not match anyone in the system. The semen evidence was collected from Tanya's body and the hem of her pants, and it was stored in the hopes that one day the sample could provide some information about the killer. The zip ties were tested, and DNA was also detected, but the sample was mixed and degraded, so no information was gained. With no leads, the case went cold until 1990, when a camera lens was found in a pawn shop in Portland. The lens was from the camera that belonged to Tanya, and the camera was missing from the van. This discovery didn't provide any new leads, and once again, the case went cold. A deck of playing cards featuring the photos and information of murder victims was distributed to prisons, with Jay and Tanya appearing on the King of Hearts card. The playing cards were created in the hopes that they could jog the memories of prisoners, but no one came forward with any information about the couple. In April of 2018, the case was warming up again. DNA was able to be extracted from the semen evidence at the scene and through a process called phenotyping, which is a process where the DNA is used to predict the features a person may have, such as their hair or eye color an image of what the killer may have looked like was created. Three images depicting a man at 25, 45, and 65 were circulated. A press conference was held where the images were released, and this generated over 100 new tips, but none of them led to a killer. While the phenotyping was taking place, the DNA was also submitted for a familial DNA match. Familial DNA was made famous by the Golden State Killer case, 
And once the DNA was in the system, a forensic genealogist found two matches, a second cousin from either side of their family. The family trees were traced back to their matches, which were their great-grandparents, and then back down to expand out on the rest of their family. The match led to a family with four children and only one son. Police staked out the neighborhood of this man and followed him, and when a cup fell from his vehicle, the police collected it and took DNA from the rim. The DNA was a perfect match to the semen found on Tanya's body and pants. The police had their man, and on May 17, 2018, William Earl Talbot II was arrested outside of his workplace and charged with the murder of Tanya Van Coylenburg. William Earl Talbot grew up with his father William and his mother Patricia, along with his three sisters. As a child, he was prone to violent outbursts, and his parents sought therapy for both William and his sisters. His sisters reported bruises and broken bones as a result of their brother's violence. The attacks were not just physical, and one sister reported being sexually abused by Talbot at a young age. William Sr. was left with physical limitations from a motorcycle accident and says that Talbot would threaten to run him over with a car as soon as he could drive. Talbot became estranged from his family as an adult, and reportedly when his mother died, he refused to go to her funeral. Despite this estrangement, Talbot was included in his mother's will. Upon her death, all four children inherited a house. Talbot had worked in the SeaTac area his entire life, mainly in construction and truck driving. In 1987, he was 24 years old, and he lived with his parents in rural Woodenville, not far from Seattle, and only seven miles from where the body of Jay Cook was found. Talbot was into photography and even had a dark room at his parents' house. His friends remember him going into remote and deserted areas in Woodenville to take photos, which he would process in his personal photography lab. Talbot had a brief criminal history. There are reports of drugs and indecent exposure charges that were ultimately dismissed. In 1985, he was arrested for misdemeanor assault, and he was ordered to take anger management classes. After skipping out on court in 1986, he was arrested and made to pay a $240 fine. Talbot inherited a house when his mother died, and neighbors described him as a recluse, saying that they rarely saw him and probably wouldn't know him if they bumped into him on the street. When Talbot was arrested, police quickly went to interview his father and his sisters. They were worried that information in the media or rumors would sway their statements. During the interviews, Talbot's father and sisters gave disturbing information about his history. Talbot was held at the Skagit County Community Justice Center, where a judge set his bail at $2 million. Talbot entered a plea of not guilty, and his lawyer requested that the bail be substantially reduced to $50,000, or for Talbot to be immediately released. This request was denied. Talbot's friends wrote letters to the judge, expressing their shock and confusion about the arrest, saying that the Talbot they knew was a quiet and gentle man who was not capable of such violence. The letters did nothing to sway the judge, and Talbot sat in jail as he awaited his trial. On June 9, 2019, jury selection began. 
Eight days later, on the 19th, an email was sent from the lab reviewing and testing the evidence to the deputy prosecutor regarding the retesting of the zip ties. When the case was first investigated, the zip ties were tested and showed a DNA sample that was too mixed and degraded to be of any use. However, technology had improved to the point where retesting the zip ties could lead to a usable sample, but the results would not be available by the time the trial started. The trial began on June 14th, five days later, and lasted a total of eight days. While Talbot was initially charged with just Tanya's murder, by the time the trial started, he faced a first-degree murder charge for Jay's death as well. During opening statements, the prosecution outlined the timeline leading up to and after the murders and highlighted the lengths that the Van Koylenberg and Cook families went to find Tanya and Jay, including hiring a private plane to look for the distinctive bronze van from the air. The defense presented Talbot as a low-key guy who worked hard in construction and truck driving. He liked a bull and he was interested in photography. And Talbot, according to the defense, was not a violent person and could not have committed these crimes. The prosecution's main evidence was the DNA extracted from the semen found on both Tanya's body and on her pants that were found in the van. This proved that he had been present on the night that she died. The defense did not deny that Talbot was present the night that they died. However, they argued that their interaction was consensual, and Talbot was not involved in the deaths of Jay or Tanya. The defense declined to provide context for this claim or explain how Talbot and Tanya met. A palm print was found in the van, and at first it did not appear to be a match for Talbot. However, on closer examination, the tech had been looking at the print upside down and when it was viewed correctly, the palm print was a match. When the defense tried to call the validity of the print evidence into question because of the initial mix-up, the tech responded that it was human error and the print was a certain match for Talbot. Two former roommates who lived with Talbot around the time of the murders gave their testimonies. Michael Seat testified about the times that Talbot had taken him to a remote area near where Jay's body was found to take photos which were later developed in the darkroom at the Talbot family home. This testimony demonstrated that Talbot had knowledge of the area where Jay's body was found. Talbot moved in with Michael Seat and another man named Ting McPherson. Tim and Talbot would go bowling together, and Tim helped Talbot get a job. However, he wasn't able to keep it for long, and Talbot moved back in with his parents. And that's where he was living at the time of the murders. Tim commented at trial that Talbot was strong and was able to rip a shower stall out of a bathroom with his bare hands. Since Tanya had been shot, the men were asked about Talbot's history with firearms. Neither man reported Talbot owning a gun and said he never went clay shooting with them, so they hadn't even seen him hold one. To their knowledge, Talbot didn't smoke, so they had no information as to the significance of the pack of cigarettes that were found in Jay's throat. The defense tried to paint Michael's seat as a bad witness, as his story changed slightly each time. However, the changes in detail were minor, such as who was walking where, and were in line with recalling memories from decades before. 
Interestingly, a large amount of Michael's statement was not allowed to be heard by the jury due to lack of evidence to back up his claims. The inadmissible testimony included information about Talbot growing up in a hoarder home with terrible family relationships and how he broke his sister's arm on one occasion. This is similar to the initial statements that Talbot's family gave, however it is unclear as to why this testimony was not included in court. Michael's inadmissible statement included information about Talbot owning a blue blanket and keeping it in his car in the 80s. There was also information given about Talbot's change of demeanor when he had been drinking and how he would get drunk and use cocaine with his girlfriend. According to Michael, Talbot would often hitchhike, where he would ride the Greyhound, and said that he saw a bronze van outside Talbot's house around the time of the murders. Talbot did not take the stand in his own defense, and none of his family members came forward to testify about his violent history. The only family member in the courtroom was the second cousin whose DNA had been used to help track him down. A medical examiner testified and addressed the initial time of death estimate made when Jay's body was found. At the time, it was estimated that Jay had been dead between one and three days before being found, and this suggested that he was alive for several days after he went missing, and perhaps even alive when Tanya was found. The medical examiner said that the estimate was just that, an estimate, and there was no way for the precise time of death to be determined three decades later. While it was possible that Tanya and Jay were alive for several days after they were reported missing, it was also just as possible that they were killed that very same day. Closing arguments were made on June 25th, and jury deliberations began. Between Talbot's arrest and the trial, the Washington State Supreme Court effectively abolished the death penalty, so it was no longer on the table, meaning that Talbot was facing life in prison if found guilty. Jurors took their time considering the evidence, and this was not an open and shut case. With only the semen linking Talbot and Tanya, there was a lot of room for reasonable doubt to creep in. They examined the evidence and tried to think of possible ways that the evidence could point towards innocence. One juror asked for a map of the area to help visualize the route the pair took, and this was denied. So they drew one from memory and shared it with the other jurors. They evaluated the timeline and decided that the most likely scenario was that the pair were killed within eight hours of arriving in Seattle. On June 28, 2019, after two days of deliberation, the jury found Talbot guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Despite the lack of physical evidence, jurors couldn't come up with an innocent reason as to why his semen was found at the scene of the crime. Upon hearing the evidence, Talbot cried out that he didn't do it and was so overwhelmed that he was unable to walk and had to be removed from the courtroom in a wheelchair. Talbot's lawyer placed a motion for a new trial, saying that the closing argument statements focused on emotions of the jurors rather than the physical evidence. His lawyer also said that the jurors ignored court instructions. After being denied access to a map of the area, one juror who was familiar with the area drew a map from memory and shared it. His lawyer tried to argue that this hand-drawn map was outside evidence and not allowed. 
However, it was ultimately decided that a juror's knowledge of the area is not outside knowledge, and the request for a new trial was denied. Between being found guilty and being sentenced, the information about the DNA evidence on the zip ties was released. The zip ties gave three separate DNA profiles, and one of the profiles had a 1 to 90 million match to Talbot, providing another key piece of evidence placing him at both crime scenes and in the van. A match for Tanya was also found, with a 1 in 24,000 chance of it being a false positive. There was a third profile present, and the same profile was present on the blanket that covered Jay's body. It was determined to be from an unknown female, and it was later found to be from a scientist at the lab who had somehow contaminated the samples. Although the release of this information didn't change anything for Talbot, jurors said that they were glad for the confirmation that their decision was the right one. Talbot walked into the sentencing hearing with no wheelchair in sight. He spoke to the court, pleading for his innocence, and insisted that he was not a violent person and did not have a temper. Again, none of his family, who had given statements saying that Talbot was in fact a violent man, were in court. Talbot went on to point out the holes in the investigation, and evidence that was not presented to the jury may have impacted the verdict. Tanya and Jay's families were invited to speak to the court, and Jay's sister spoke of how she was happy that her brother's killer was finally behind bars after more than 30 years, while his other sister commented on Talbot's unremarkable life. Jay's mother gave her theory about the events leading up to the murder, saying that she believed that Jay and Tanya picked up a hitchhiking Talbot on a cold November night, and Talbot killed them for their kindness. Tanya's brother John spoke of the massive help the DNA and genealogy was in the arrest. And finally, the judge spoke and handed down two life sentences to be served consecutively with no chance of parole. Talbot's lawyer plans to appeal the sentence, and at the time of this recording, no further information is available about the appeal. Talbot is currently in prison, and unless he is successful with his future appeals, he will never be released. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. And a huge thank you to Jess for her research and writing in this episode. For more information on this episode, please visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to source material and further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, I have a case submission tab on my website, and you can find a link to it in my show notes. I really like taking suggestions from listeners, so if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.